on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. They break around in 2007. The plan is to open it in 2009. Eventually, Lehman Brothers collapses. The United States financial industry just goes into a coma. Biggest economic catastrophe since the Great Depression of the, of the 20s and 30s. And Vegas was just totally wiped out economically. It was just, it was just really bad. And you had all these projects all, all over Southern Nevada that the developers just walked away. They pulled the plug, they lost their funding, and the Fountain Blue was one of them. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 167 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to take a moment to thank my guests from the last episode, F1 fanatic and host of the Park Ferme podcast, Todd McCandless. Todd had joined me back in May of 2022, shortly after the Las Vegas Grand Prix was officially announced, to talk about Formula One in Sin City. Now, with race weekend just weeks away, I thought it might be fun to have Todd back for an updated chat. In addition to all the controversy and chaos surrounding the Vegas race, we also talked about the current F1 season, Max Verstappen and Red Bull's dominance, waning US interest in Formula One, and much more. If you haven't checked it out yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out 30 Days to Lights Out, Countdown to the Vegas Grand Prix on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. For the newest resort coming to the Las Vegas Strip, needless to say, it's been a long and strange journey. The Fountain Blue Las Vegas sat completely dormant and roughly 70% complete for almost 15 years. It's been through ownership changes, bankruptcy sales and lawsuits, it's faced recession, financial issues, questions about its structural integrity, and even a global pandemic. But after all that, here we are, powering ahead towards the grand opening of what's shaping up to be one of the biggest and most luxurious resorts on the Vegas Strip. Joining me to talk about the past, present, and future of the Fountain Blue is Eli Siegel. Eli is an investigative business reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and prior to moving into that position, he was a real estate reporter, a beat that he covered starting shortly after he moved to Las Vegas back in 2012. Eli and I went in-depth into the history of the Fountain Blue, covering everything from the initial ownership and concept for the property back in the early 2000s, right up to present day, and the effect that the opening of the Fountain Blue may have on revitalizing the north part of the Strip. Please enjoy my conversation with Eli Siegel of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. So I've been working in journalism since 2006, and I moved to Vegas in 2012 uh, to work for the Las Vegas Sun, which is the smaller daily in town. And they hired me as their real estate reporter. Um, they had they had an opening, and I was at, I had already been working in as a business reporter in California. Uh, I was working for a business weekly, like a weekly business paper in San Jose, California, uh, for a couple of years. And then there was this opening at the Las Vegas Sun, and I remember the ad. It was interesting. I, if I'm pretty, if I'm not mistaken, the ad said they had an opening for a business reporter, but it didn't specify what 
exactly you were going to be covering. And when I, I sent in an application and because I was looking for a new job and just I thought it'd be interesting. I'd heard I'd heard about the Sun. They'd won a, a Pulitzer Prize a few years prior to that, I think in like 2008 or 2009. And so this was 2012 when I when I applied to work there. And I thought, all right, this would be interesting covering business in Vegas. Didn't really know anything about Vegas. I'd been here a handful of times and certainly didn't know the ins and outs of it. And then the editors, they, you know, they wanted to set up a phone, like an initial phone interview. And they told me it was actually to cover real estate and housing. And I thought, oh, that'd be that'd be interesting. Cause I knew Vegas at that time. The only thing I really knew about the Vegas real estate market was that it had had this huge real estate bubble and then just a devastating crash. And that was pretty much all I knew uh, about, about Vegas specifically. And so, you know, they flew me out there for, for a bunch, you know, for a bunch more interviews and then they hired me. And so I moved to Vegas in the summer of 2012 uh, to cover real estate. And I had done some real estate coverage in San Jose because um, at that time, you know, this was I had worked at the at this weekly business paper from like early 2010 to the middle of 2012 until I left for Vegas. And at that time, you know, you've got the Great Recession going on. <clears throat> Pretty much every every city, at least in the United States, was hit very hard, you know, to various degrees. Uh, San Jose was hit hard. You know, the San Jose area was hit hard, not nearly as hard as Vegas, not even close to as badly as Vegas was hit, as I later learned. But, you know, there were a lot of, uh, you know, commercial real estate foreclosures. There were certain residential areas in the area that had had a lot of foreclosures and some abandoned projects. And so I was actually, I was not a real estate reporter where I was working, but I, one of my beats was covering the legal industry. And so through my coverage of the legal industry, I started covering commercial real estate bankruptcies and also commercial real estate foreclosures. Um, so I'd had some experience covering real estate, not full time or anything like covering market trends and that sort of thing. Um, but I'd done a little bit of coverage. So as I had a little bit of familiarity with with the ins and outs of covering real estate, mostly distressed real estate, you know, real estate that had faced big financial problems and, and whatnot. So when I moved to Vegas, I was I was covering the housing market, uh, commercial real estate, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it was a very interesting time to to move here because when I moved here, basically the economy by that point had stopped getting worse uh, because it basically been in a free fall for about four or five years. And it was just just absolutely pummeled out here. Um, our, I really believe Vegas was the hardest hit area in the United States by by the Great Recession, if not you know top two, top three. It was it was pretty bad, uh, pretty much any way you measure it. And things had really stopped getting worse, and they were very very slowly starting to turn around. But 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 even when I moved here, unemployment was still very high. Um, you know, short sales and foreclosures were just dominated the housing market. There was virtually no construction. Uh, there were tons of abandoned construction projects. Still, you know, at, at that time, they were still all over all over the Las Vegas Valley. So um, it was a very, it's very peculiar time to to move here for sure. So that's that's how I started covering real estate in Vegas. And I spent four years in the Las Vegas Sun, and then in the summer of 2016, I, I joined the Review Journal. I vividly remember the the crash and how cheap the real estate was in Las Vegas at that time. I think my wife and I did probably one of our very early Vegas trips would have been in around 2010, 2011. And I remember us driving on a, doing a little road trip from the strip down to Hoover Dam. Cause of course, as a tourist, that's what you do. And driving through some of these, um, developments that, as you say, at that time had basically frozen and looking at the real estate prices and seeing how 
cheap it was at that time. Yeah. And the two of us kind of looking at each other and going, damn, we should buy some property down here and hang on to that for a while. And maybe that'd be a good, good investment or a good, good real estate, uh, good retirement plan. We never did. And now we kind of regret it to a certain degree, but it, it I can imagine it, it jumping into Las Vegas at that time, as you say, in 2012, there was a lot of stuff that was just kind of, it had just sort of flatlined at that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And real estate prices were unbelievably cheap. Like you said, um, there were an enormous amount of bargain hunting investors who were just buying up homes, you know, sight unseen, paying cash. They were buying as many houses as they could because it was, as they saw it, and, and in hindsight, it was a really a once in a lifetime opportunity to buy homes that cheap. And you had numerous like hedge funds and other big investment firms coming into Vegas, buying up as many. I remember talking to realtors, you know, in 2013, 2012, 2014, around that time who worked with, you know, big, you know, major investment firms. And they said literally their job was just to buy as many homes as possible for their clients. They never visited them. They never toured them. They just wanted to buy as many as possible. And they very often paid cash and they turned them into rentals. And so the plan was buy up as many homes as possible, rent them out. Because at that time you had so many people who had basically been locked out of buying a house because they had had a foreclosure, they had personally filed for bankruptcy. They had to do a short sale because they were underwater on their house. And basically, you had people across Southern Nevada whose credit had just been absolutely wiped out. And there's no way they could have afforded to, there's, no one would have given them a loan to buy a house at that time. Um, you're essentially on a no fly list for upwards of like five to seven years with banks uh, before they'd be willing to lend you money again to buy a house. So you got to live somewhere. And so you end up renting. And so you had all these people buying up homes to turn into rentals. And the market was just flooded with investors owning rental homes. And they were buying them super cheap. Um, Canadians actually, I think, were one of the biggest source of international buyers at that time. Um, because, you know, obviously, you know, Canada has long been the number one international uh, feeder of tourists to, to Vegas. I think it's like Canada, Mexico, and Great Britain, you know, the UK, uh, are, are top three. Um, and Canada and Mexico, I think go back and forth between one and two, but Canada has always been a major source of international tourism to Vegas. Canadians love coming here. As you know, WestJet flies like a million flights a week down here. And they started buying a lot of cheap houses. Um, but they weren't the only ones. You had tons of American investors, big investment firms buying up cheap houses and, I remember when I moved here, actually, I'd moved here from a town right outside San Jose. And at that time, actually, in San Jose in 2012, the housing market was starting to accelerate and people, you know, prices were going up actually pretty fast. And, and a lot of people were getting priced out of their apartments and it was beginning to be, you know, a bit of a problem. So the timing worked out for me personally. I just happened to get this job in Vegas at that time. It was just kind of purely coincidental. And I happened to be moving to an area where prices were absurdly cheap. And so I remember where I was living in California, I think just approximately I had, I think I had like a 660 square foot one bedroom apartment that I was paying like over $1,200 a month for. Then I moved to Vegas and I got basically like a two bedroom apartment for over a thousand square feet. And I think my base rent was like $865 a month. So, you know, that same apartment now would probably be double the price, but you, you get the idea, like prices were super cheap. It's funny that you mentioned Canadians coming down and, and buying real estate. I actually uh, ran into a guy the one time 
at a at an event, and he was wearing a, a band T-shirt from a very obscure Canadian band. So I walked over and I said, "You have got to be Canadian." And we got we got talking. It turned out he actually he was only a couple of years older than me, and he grew up in the same area of Winnipeg that I did. So we knew a lot of the same places and stuff. And so we got talking and I found out that he actually was a real estate agent in Las Vegas who specialized in helping Canadians buy property <laughs> in Vegas. That was that was his gig. And it, it just it's funny that you mentioned that that was, that was such a big thing. And I think around that time frame as well, um, the Canadian dollar was a lot better compared to the US dollar it was a lot closer now it's it's terrible but at that time i think it was a lot closer i think the canadian dollar was around 80 or 85 cents us as opposed to now where it's anywhere bounces between 65 and 70 cents us so it, it was a, a much better time uh, a much better time for canadians to be getting involved in the in the real estate market in vegas at that time i just think it's so funny that you bring that up <laughs> yeah i remember i did a story once about um, this this real estate agent actually operated a kiosk at Fashion Show Mall, which is this you know really big mall on the Strip, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it's a very it's a big mall, very popular with tourists and locals alike. And I remember walking. Through, I think I was just at the mall on my own, like on a weekend or something. And I happened to see this kiosk there, and they had all and it was this real estate agent who had all these pamphlets and flyers and he was trying to sell houses in the mall. It's like, oh, I've never, <laughs> never seen that before. So I came back and I called the guy up from work. I think when I, you know, the next week and I said, hey, I was at the mall. I saw your kiosk and it seems like an interesting story. Can I come by and talk to you? He's like, yeah, come on over. So, and I remember talking to him and he was one of his biggest source of clients where they were from Canada at the time. And, and I think by that point, maybe it started to taper off because prices were going up. And so a lot of those bargain bargain buyers were, were starting to drift away. But he, I think he, if I remember, memory serves me right, he has sold a lot of houses to, to Canadian investors. Um, but it was interesting too. I also learned later, like years down the road when I had done a story about foreclosures and, you know, at the time you had all the, you know, just enormous numbers of homes that were going up, going into foreclosure because the economy here, you know, like I said, just been totally wiped out. Uh, housing market had crashed. It was just, it was just an economic mess. And the, the, really the only or main location for foreclosure sales, it's this auction basically where you can go to, it's in this parking lot out in the, in, in the, it's a parking lot for a downtown Las Vegas office building. And that's where they hold the auctions. And, you know, you can go there and get a, get a list of all the properties that are coming up for sale and figure out what to bid. And, and it's interesting, you actually have to bring cashier's checks. You have to bring cash and actually buy, you have to pay the full purchase price. Maybe it's different now. I don't know, but at least at the time, you have to bring cash, like a bag of cashier's checks to essentially pay the whole purchase price in cash um, on the spot at the auction. So, um, you know, I, there were buyers there who, who go there representing and they have clients who are the actual owners and actual investors and they give them like just like stacks of cashier's checks to, to hold on to, to to buy these houses and i remember talking to people and who who told me at the depths of the recession after you know at the depths of the of the market collapse there were so many people who were crowding these this parking lot to buy these houses because you could literally buy a house for like 50 grand which is you know obviously totally unheard of in, in at least in vegas and you know, a house that maybe had been worth two hundred, you now get it for seventy-five. Like just crazy, crazy discounts. And there were so many people who were at these auctions who were so just like thirsty to buy these houses that at the time the office building where these auctions were held didn't let any of the bidders come inside to use the bathrooms. 
And so the building was essentially locked and no one wanted to leave to because they didn't want to miss out on any of the auction on any, on any of the opportunities to bid on houses. So they would literally pee on the wall of this <laughs> of this of this parking lot because they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to miss out on any of the opportunities to, to buy cheap houses. And I remember I, this was like years after the fact that at a, when I did the story, this was at a time when foreclosures had slowed down a lot and there weren't a lot of people at the auctions. But the people who used to go to those auctions, I remember they I talked to like three people who said they used to urinate on the walls. And I remember one of them even told me, said, if, if someone tells you they didn't pee on the walls, they're lying. <laughs> and so just like really crazy, just weird, crazy stuff was happening in Vegas at that time as a consequence of, of the market collapse. Not, you know, to say nothing of like the, the misery that a lot of people went through um, because there were, you know, people, their lives were just totally ruined and upended by, by all this. But there were some very bizarre kind of spillover effects, too, in addition to all that. I wanted to get you on to talk about one of the biggest real estate stories, I guess, that really happened in Las Vegas, commercial real estate and casino real estate wise for the last decade and a half. And it seems like it's it's sort of kind of coming to a bit of a conclusion. And that is the Fountain Blue. This is uh, a story that has gained a lot of traction in the last year or so, particularly because it's now we're, we're sort of rocketing towards uh, an opening of this property, finally, to what I would like to call the world's oldest new hotel, I think. <laughs> it's, fair. it's a fair assessment. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit in the history of, of this particular property. This goes back, as I say, a decade and a half, essentially all the way back 2005 is when things sort of started to get underway on the Fountain Blue. Right. So the original developers of the Fountain Blue were two, two people. It was the two, two main principles involved. It was an individual out of Florida, a Florida developer named Jeffrey Sofer, and then uh, a very longtime Las Vegas casino executive named Glenn Schaefer. And they partnered up. Now, Sofer had acquired the land where the Fountain Blue stands today. I think he acquired it in 2000. There, there had been an old hotel on there that had changed names over the years. It's called, it, it, after a series of name changes, it was called the El Rancho. Not to be confused with the very first El Rancho that basically started the Las Vegas Strip in the early 40s. This was like the second El Rancho, the second you know incarnation of, of the El Rancho. And it had been closed for like eight years, I think, by the time Sofer even bought the property. It's just been like this empty building, essentially. Um, eventually, Sofer, I believe he imploded it or tore it down or something after he bought. But he bought the land in 2000. And then eventually, like you say, in 2005, he had by that point, he had teamed up with you know Glenn Schaefer to do a, a project called Fountain Blue. And they got the name from the original Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida, because, you know, this is a very iconic hotel in the United States. It opened in the 50s, you know, long history of like Sinatra and famous singers and whatnot going there. It's a real, real iconic property in South Florida. Sofer bought that property in 2005. And that same year, like shortly thereafter, announced plans to build a Fountain Blue in Vegas on this plot of land that he had acquired, you know, some years earlier. Uh, you know, so they broke ground, you know, and, and this is at a time, this is 2005 where we are like in the, in the throes of the real estate bubble out here in Las Vegas and in many other cities, Vegas is, was far more extreme than, than in other markets, so at least around the United States, you know, the amount of money coming in, the amount of speculative real estate development, the, the rate at which home prices were growing, everything was just like on steroids to the nth degree. It was just going crazy. And then you have... And, and Fountain Blue at the time, even though it's like this 60 plus story high rise, 
That was a very normal project plan at that time. You saw lots of skyscrapers. You know, I, I think there was even a term for it called the Manhattanization of Las Vegas is what people called it because there were so many plans to build condo high rises, mix, you know, high rises that were a mix of like condos and hotel rooms, just straight hotels. Like there were all kinds of plans, the vast majority of which I should point out actually never got built, but the, but there were tons of plans uh, to build high rises all up and down the strip, near the strip, downtown Las Vegas, in the suburbs, like all over the place. And if you, if you know Vegas, you would, you would really scratch your head at that because this is a very suburban metropolitan area. It's very, it's, it's not densely populated at all for the most part. Um, it's dominated by single family homes and garden style apartment complexes. You do, you know, it's vast, you know, it's basically the city built from scratch over the last, you know, 60 years, 70 years for the, for, you know, for the most part is when it really started going in earnest. And obviously, you know, the roots go back much, much farther than that, but you know, it's uh, it's, it's very heavy on single family homes. It's very suburban. It's very sprawled out. And so the, the concept of building, you know, big city high rises here for people to live in, I, I think was, was relative, was, was a fairly new concept. I think there had been like one condo tower complex built in the seventies or eighties. And that was kind of about it. And then you get to the real estate bubble and like everyone wants to build high rises all over the place. So it's just this kind of fervor for, for skyscrapers. So that's the context in which the fountain blue, uh, you know, originated. They break ground. I, th- I want to say in 2007, while the market is still hot, but you're, but you're starting to see some cracks and, you know, home prices by that point, I think it already started to come down. Unemployment was probably ticking up a little bit, but it wasn't like anything, you know, at, at scary levels or anything. Um, and then, so they break around in 2007. The plan is to open it in 2009. Obviously, eventually, Lehman Brothers collapses. The United States financial industry just goes just goes into a coma. It just, you know, there's this, you know, biggest biggest economic uh, catastrophe since the Great Depression of the of the 20s and 30s. Um, and Vegas, like I said, was just just totally wiped out economically. It was just it was just really bad. And you had all these projects all all over Southern Nevada that the developers just walked away. They pulled the plug, they lost their funding, and they literally just just walked away. And you had all these abandoned projects just sitting there idle, just collecting dust. And the Fountain Blue was one of them. You know, it was not unique. It was one of many. Um, It it was not even the only one on the Strip, let alone the only one on the North Strip um, that that saw its plans coming, that saw its plans die. Um, You know, there were a couple... Big plots, you know, there was another project right across the street, which is today Resorts World. But at that time, it was known as the Echelon Project. And Boyd Gaming uh, was, was the developer of that. They pulled the plug, I want to say, in fall of 2008. And after they had built, you know, a small percentage of the building, but they left this like kind of steel skeleton just sitting there for years until the developers of Resorts World came along like five years later in 2013 and bought it and eventually finished it and turned it into, into their own project, Resortful Las Vegas. Um, so you had Echelon sitting there idle. You had Fountain Blue sitting there idle. This is just on the north, on the north end of the strip. You, on the south end of the strip, on the, other, on the other end, three, four miles away, you had a bunch of other sites that were, that were left empty because condo towers and other big plans just died with the, with the Great Recession, uh, or at least you know right around that time. And, uh, but what's, but what was interesting about the fountain blue and the fountain blue, they filed for bankruptcy in 2009, you know, even just a few months prior to the bankruptcy, the developers had filed a lawsuit against all their lenders, basically saying they were unscrupulous and they were, they had, 
reneged on their commitments to fund the project and then eventually filed bankruptcy and then and then it just sat there for a little bit but um before it was before it was acquired out of bankruptcy but um so then the fountain blue ends up actually so a year after its bankruptcy carl icon famous corporate raider billionaire american investor he buys it for approximately 150 million dollars that's a bargain keep in mind this is it's a total bargain <laughs> Just an absolute screaming deal. Obviously, by any measure, $150 million is clearly a lot of money. But when you look at the cost to build this thing, it was a multi-billion dollar project. It was about 70, 75% finished at the time. So billions, some, you know, I don't know exactly how much money had been spent on it, but it was clearly like at least a billion or a couple billion dollars had been spent on this project already. I think it's fair to say. And he buys it for 150. So cents on the dollar. And then he basically does nothing with it for years. And it just stands there you know, just with no end in sight, no one has any idea what his plans are. He's really quiet about it. Um, and it's just kind of, it's just there <laughs> on the North end, on the, on the North end of the strip, you've got this big blue tower, uh, on the North end of, uh, you know, of the Las Vegas strip with all these holes where windows are supposed to be and the, and the base of it, it's like this unfinished garage and, you know, entry area. And it's just, it's just there and no one's doing anything with it. And what was interesting though, is that eventually as the economy started to pick up and th- you know, the, the worst of the recession was behind us, you saw all these abandoned projects get purchased around the Las Vegas Valley, typically for cents on the dollar by people who needed to untangle huge legal mess, you know, like a, a, a knot of like liens and lawsuits and where the, they had to find the, the, the building plans, they had to figure out if the permits were outdated. Like it was a total mess that, the, that these guys took on. And they were buying up like unfinished condo projects, unfinished hotels, whatever. St- again, for cents on the dollar and then finishing them. And in many cases, leasing them out or flipping them at a certain point. So you had all these, you know, failed projects that were, that were being finished except the Fountain Blue. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was under new ownership, but it was just standing there with no, you know, at one point Icon listed it for sale. That was like the biggest movement anyone saw in it, the fact that he was trying to sell it, which was expected, you know, because that's that's what he does. Um, and no one bought it. You know, I think it, you know, I think he listed it, I want to say in like 2015 and or around that time and no one bought it and uh, or at least no one closed on it. Um, and then eventually you fast forward to 2017 and it gets a new owner, this individual named Steve Whitkoff. And so that 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 really opened the new the next chapter of, of the Fountain Blues when it sold in 2017. And interesting, going back to the point about building these mixed-use buildings on the Strip and building condos on the Strip and things like that, it seems like such a weird endeavor because all of the locals that I know, and I'm friends with a lot of people in Vegas over the course of my my trips over the course of the years, they none of them want to go to the Strip unless they have to. It, it doesn't seem like a place where people are going to buy condos to live unless they're maybe buying them as investment properties with the intention of renting them out or, you know, now airbnb them out or whatever. It just, it seems like a very strange endeavor. But I guess at that time, Vegas was just booming and people, as you say, they were, this looked like a good investment at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people did buy buy those condos. And I think, you know, Vegas has always attracted people who want to own a second or even third home. 
here in, in, in Vegas and they don't live here year round. Um, you get a lot of snowbirds who come in from like the Midwest or Canada or the East coast. And, you know, they want to be here during the winter cause it's not nearly as bad, you know, it's, you know, uh, you know, a cold day in Vegas is like 50 degrees. Right. So it's really, it's pretty, it's pretty good even at, at its coldest. That's uh, that's um, short and flip-flop weather for us Canadians. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. We're, 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 I, I live on the far West side of Vegas in Summerlin and we've got some elevation. So it actually does snow. We do get some snow out here, but it very rarely sticks. Let's put it that way. And it's only for like a couple of days. So that's still, um, it's still short and flip-flop weather for us yeah. Canadians. <laughs> yeah. The, so the, the weathers are very mild. There's a ton of entertainment here, obviously, with all the shows and the casinos and the restaurants. So you've always had people who want to own a second home here. So a lot of those condo towers, that's what they got, was they got people who were buying them as a second home. People would essentially use them as like weekend crash pads if they wanted to come to Vegas for, you know, if they're either these are really wealthy people, obviously, they want to have their own place. They don't want to have to bother with a hotel and they'll buy a condo. They'll stay there one week in a month or however often they want to use it. And, and that's it. And they just use it as like essentially a hotel for themselves. Um, other people would buy and still do buy those high rise condo units um, to rent out to, to tenants. And there are people in Vegas who live in Vegas who do want to live on or near the strip. They tend to be younger. They tend to be single. They want to be near the excitement of the strip. Um, and they might do it for a year or two and then move to the suburbs or leave Vegas altogether. But for at least some period of time, they do want that action and that excitement. So there is a there is a base. I'm not going to say it's huge, but there is a base of tenants, uh, of locals who do want to live on the strip. I mean, personally, I can probably count on one hand how many people I've I've known over the years who actually live year round in one of those towers. That's not to say there aren't more, but that's that's just my own personal experience. Um, but you do get a lot of people, like I said, who who stay there periodically, for, you know, over, over the course of a year. Um, and at the time, yeah, it seemed like a good investment because property values were skyrocketing. You know, it was very easy to buy a home and flip it uh, in in two thousand four, two thousand five. Um, in some cases right away, you know, there were, there was something called a double escrow where you would, you would go under contract to buy a home and you'd already lined up a buyer to flip it to. So you close on the purchase and then you immediately flip it to the, ne- to the next buyer. And so this is the, the cra- this is the craziness of what was, what was going on at the time. And a lot of that, you know, people were doing that with single family houses and whatever, but, but with these condos, I think there was a, there was a real excitement around them. And, you know, it seemed like, really kind of high class flashy living right near the strip and so it attracted a lot of a lot of money a lot of investors for sure some of the 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 fountain blue stuff that happened during the icon years were interesting i mean i love the fact that the plaza went in and bought furniture and carpeting yeah. and and painting and you know this was a good way for them to improve their look because the fountain blue was going to be a, a very luxurious, very high-end property. So this was a, a, a must've been a great boon for the plaza to be able to walk in and say, we want all of your couches and all of your dresses and all of your beds and all of your nightstands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, those, that was probably the main thing that actually happened with the fountain blue under icons ownership. Besides, I think at one point, I want to say in 2013 or 2014, the crane that had been out there for years was finally taken down. Um, I think there was, you know, security at all times at the property. So people were keeping an eye on it. Um, but the plaza came in, like you said, they bought all these furniture, you know, all this furniture and fixtures for, for their own property. And then at a certain point also, I want to say in 2016, 2017, Icon got approval from Clark County to literally wrap the base of the tower with essentially like a cloth type covering 
to just seal it off and make it look like it was finished as a, essentially as a way to cover up the eyesore. Mm-hmm. And there, there was another, you know, at least one other project I know of did that too. So it wasn't the only one, but it was, it was a wrap and he just wrapped it. And uh, I don't think it was out there for actually a very long time, uh, if memory serves me right. But, but that was, those were like two of the main things that ever happened to the building, like visibly that happened to the building uh, under his, you know, seven year ownership. I remember the story of the million dollar wrap with, with Carl Icahn. And I remember seeing that story and just kind of laughing about it. That was, I mean, that would have been in the early days of me making frequent trips to Vegas. So I wasn't a hundred percent familiar with the the background on that story, but I remember seeing the, the, it, it did look like an eyesore. It looked like an old abandoned building at that end of the strip. And it definitely wasn't adding to the aesthetic of, of the North strip by any stretch of the imagination, but for icon to just drop a million bucks to basically wrap it in vinyl and fabric and say, nah, good enough. It, it just, it kind of cracks me up. Yeah. And, and the fountain blue wasn't the only building, you know, it wasn't the only property at that time that contributed to that kind of dark sense of walking around the North strip. Cause you had, you had two huge vacant lots where big project plans never materialized. You had, a property just across the street, essentially like a little bit South, just next to fashion show mall, which is where there were plans to build uh, a plaza, like the Plaza Las Vegas in, in, in the same vein of uh, the famous Plaza uh, hotel in New York. That never happened. Um, you know, that, that project didn't never got built and it changed hands a couple of times and it's still empty to this day. Wind resorts owns it and they've, they've owned it for about you know four years now, I want to say, and it's, it's still sitting empty. Uh, there's no, there are no pro, there's no construction going on there. Um, excuse me. And then you also had Echelon, you know, which is now Resorts World. That sat un, untouched for years, even after um, Genting Group bought it to turn it into Resorts World. They didn't really do much with it at all for for a good three three four years until construction really started to to pick up, like visibly pick up. Then you have the Fountain Blue, just north of the Fountain Blue. You've got this site it used to be the Wet and Wild site. It was a water park that was out there for years. Um, was torn down around 03, 04 because people had plans for, you know, big condo towers. Obviously, that never happened. A um, bunch of different project plans came and went from that wet and wild site. And then over the last decade, it's been tied up. Uh, there's an individual, very famous name. I don't know if they're related. I think maybe they're distant cousins, Jackie Robinson. Um, he was a former NBA, he was a former uh, professional basketball player. He's had plans literally for almost a decade now at this point to build an arena and hotel towers and it's, it's literally just a giant hole in the ground because he excavated about 10 or 15 feet deep. And at least construction wise, that's the only visible thing that he's, that he's done. I think they've done some like trenching and that sort of thing, but that it's just essentially a giant hole in the ground. And so you've got these big empty lots, these big abandoned, like massive abandoned projects. And so I remember when I moved here, the North strip, it wasn't well lit, you know, because also at that time the Sahara had, had closed. I think initially because of financial problems, and then eventually the, um, the owners came back and said they wanted to, they were going to rebrand it into the SLS. And eventually, you know, construction there got underway to, to renovate and, and redo that property. But you know, you've got all these just dark sites. It's not well lit. It's kind of it's kind of sketchy to walk around at night. You know, it just it wasn't an inviting place at all. Um, and so the Fountain Blue was just one reason for that. I don't want to, you know, they were far from the only reason and far from the only 
property out there that had an uncertain future for sure. Steve Whitkoff getting involved with the the property, he he bought it. I mean, rumor was he paid around $600 million. That's a, mm-hmm. a hell of an investment for Carl Icahn, considering he bought it for $150 million. Um, Whitkoff had big plans for this property, including a, a name change that confused a lot of people. He did, yeah. So Wickoff, he he did buy it for six hundred million. That was that was announced and disclosed in public records. So that's yeah. He he bought it for six hundred million, and I think I want to say it was around summer of twenty seventeen when he bought it. Um, at the time, I remember in the in the press release at the time, I think he even referred to it at by, by the property. He referred to the property by its address and didn't actually call it a Fountain Blue. And so. There was definitely some talk, like, what, what's he going to do with it? Is it going to stay as the Fountain Blue? Like, no one really knew what, what he was going to do with it for, for several months. And there were rumors going around, of course. So they put out a press release saying that this was going to be called the Drew Las Vegas. And it was going to have a couple of different Marriott branded properties within the complex. And I remember the first thing I, ever, I saw, I thought when I saw this was like, who's Drew? Like, what, what is this about? And I started making some calls and talked to people. Turns out... His son, Andrew, had died of a drug overdose in 2011. He had an Oxycontin overdose. And I think he was only like 22 years old at the time that he died. So he had decided to name the property after his son. And I think at the time, he even had plans to open up. I think he had like plans for other Drew branded hotels um, in other locations around the United States. Um, but that was, that was the origin of the name. He named it after, after his son. And I remember I met with Wickoff. I only met him once. I met him for an interview inside the, the building, inside what was then the Drew. And he, he got very emotional, as, as you might expect, talking about his son. And he even had a couple of tattoos that he had gotten. Um, I think he had Drew tattooed on his forearm and he had like, I remember tattooed on his chest. Like he, he kind of pulled back his shirt a little bit to show me when I was sitting and sitting there with the interview. Uh, with him. And uh, it was it really, you could tell it, it meant a lot to him to name this property after his son. Um, and then eventually, I think at one point, you know, he pushed back the opening date uh, because of like, you know, there were delays with, you know, it took, took longer than expected to get the design ready and to work out all the kinks with the construction contracts and all that stuff. And so uh, it gets to a point where his plan is he wants to open it up in 2022. So you fast forward to January of 2020 and he tells me he's getting, he's like basically getting all the licensing he needs from Nevada casino regulators. And he, he appears at this hearing before, I think it was the Nevada gaming control board or something like that. And I speak with him afterwards. This was like late January, 2020. And he tells me, and I'm talking to him, like interviewing him about what's going on. He says he's getting really close to closing on a $2 billion construction loan. Like, whoa, all right. And he said that, you know, construction really is going to amp up. You're going to see a lot more activity. Because even by that point, if you would drive by, it, was, it looked really quiet mm-hmm. when you would drive by the building. And there wasn't much, didn't seem like there was much activity going on. But he said that inside there actually was a lot of activity. And you were going to see a lot more in, in the coming months. And he was like a month or two away from closing on this $2 billion loan. And I was like, all right. And then what happens? March 2020. Yeah. The world shuts down, COVID-19, you know, I mean, you know, you know the rest. Vegas shuts down basically overnight, like most cities. Tourism effectively effectively stops. The strip becomes this ghost, this like surreal ghost town of closed casinos and closed resorts. I remember 
one time I even, I had a day off on a Friday and I took a bike ride up and down the strip. It was like a once, first of all, I would never recommend doing that ever, you know, no. riding your bike on the, <laughs> riding your bike on the strip. It's a, you're, it's a bad idea. Terrible it's idea. <laughs> it's just very, very, very dangerous. But at this time there's like no traffic. So I thought, all right, this is great. I love the bicycle. So I, I thought, all right, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to take a bike ride on the strip. It's like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Right. So I'm riding up and down the strip. I start at the very South edge at Russell road, go all the way up to Sahara and then back again. And it was, I mean, I'll never forget it. I took a ton of pictures with my cell phone. It was, it was surreal to see, you know, you had small retail properties that had been boarded up. You had, resort entrances, you know, these big driveways that lead up to the entrance to the buildings that were literally barricaded with like concrete barricades or SUVs that, that the resort operators had parked out there. So you literally couldn't drive up. You had police officers patrolling up and down the strip. Uh, I think private security guards too. And I remember it was just, it was just crazy. Like you would just, you never could have, you never, it's like, out of, it was like out of a movie, you know, like a, like a bad movie, like some apocalyptic movie envisioning what Vegas would be like if, if every casino was shut down. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was really, it was very surreal. And so amid all the chaos in March of 2020, when everyone's life was being turned upside down, no one knew what was going to happen. <clears throat> you know, casinos were, were under state order to, you know, governor's orders to, to literally close uh, for a period of time. Um, Wickoff announced that they were suspending construction on the Drew. He didn't have to because construction in Nevada was allowed to stay open, whereas a lot of other businesses were, were forced to close. Um, but construction sites were allowed to stay open. Um, but he decided to suspend construction because of just all the turmoil and all the, you know, all the insanity that was going on. And I don't think he was the only one. I think there were other projects that got delayed or that, you know, he was, he was far from alone. Um, but on the strip, that was to the best of my recollection, that was the biggest project to stop um, as a direct result of the pandemic, at least to stop temporarily. And then you had all these liens that were filed uh, by contractors uh, within a couple of months of, of the project stopping. You had this big lawsuit from a handful of former executives who had been, who had lost their jobs when, when, when COVID started and they claimed they weren't you know, their separation agreements, they claimed they weren't paid what their contracts call for. These were like high level executives at the resort. And then the property just sat there. He never resumed construction and no one really knew what was going on. Fast forward to February of 2021 and Jeff Sofer, the original developer, comes back and reacquires the property. I mean, it was truly this like crazy full circle moment where you had the original developer, the Fountain Blue, coming back, teaming up with Coke Industries of all of all companies, this massive conglomerate um, out of Kansas, and he reacquires it. And we, were, I remember talking to people who were just blown away by <laughs> just the narrative of this whole thing. It was really, it was really pretty stunning. And um, later, you know, and they acquired it through what's known as a deed in lieu of foreclosure, which you know most people don't don't know what that is. It's essentially a way to acquire real estate while avoiding the foreclosure process. Mm -hmm. And just in general, not specific to this, but in general, that happens when a property owner might be underwater, they might be behind on their mortgage payments, and they're facing a threat, a possible threat of losing it to their lenders. Just in general, I don't know that, I still don't know to this day the details of how close Whitcoff came to losing the Fountain Blue or losing the Drew to, uh, to foreclosure. I'm still not sure, but he sold it through this, through this process. 
Um, later find out that they, that Wyckoff and his partner, sorry, um, Sofer and his partners acquired it for $350 million, wow. uh, which was, you know, almost half of what Wyckoff had, had paid uh, several, you know, five years earlier, four mm-hmm. years earlier, whatever it was. Um, and then, so Sofer reacquires it kind of, he's pretty quiet for a while on what his plans are. You know, the economy out here is still just really beat up from, from COVID. It's, you know, it's getting better, you know, 20, 2021, the economy did get better, but it was still pretty, it was still pretty bad. You know, visitor levels, obviously tourism is the main engine of the economy out here. Everything, you know, virtually everything depends on it and feeds off of it. And, you know, visitor levels were still way below what they were before COVID. Conventions really started, start, hadn't started coming back yet. And, you know, for, for conventions, you know, it's interesting, the, the share of visitors, like the, the share of people who visit Vegas for conventions is not, it's, it's relatively, it's a lot smaller than people who come here just for vacations, but they spend a lot of money, yeah. you know, cause they're, they're on corporate accounts. And so you get tons of people who come in and they book huge blocks of rooms. They go out for big dinners. Um, so it's a very lucrative business for, for the hotels and convention, op- convention facility operators here in Las Vegas. And that had basically stopped. And that, and that everyone knew like that was going to come back a lot slower because if you want to go to Vegas for a weekend, you can, you know, in theory, you can just go that day. If you live close enough, you can drive here or just need a couple, couple weeks to plan it. Convention takes months uh, to plan. And so that, that's like, you know, turning around a, turning around a cruise ship, if you will. So it's, it's a much slower thing. Um, And so the economy is like still pretty wobbly. And eventually, I think it was like in November, sometime in the fall of 2021, Sofer announced that he's going to open it in a couple of years. And it's now called Fountain Blue Las Vegas. So he brings back the old name. And uh, and that's and then since then, it's, it really just has been like a steady march of, you know, visible progress, progress with construction. Uh, lots of announcements on, you know, what the feature, you know, what this resort is going to feature. Um, and it's just, it's really just been, it's just been chugging along pretty much uh, for close to two years now, ever since he, he resumed construction. There was a lot of skepticism when it was repurchased as, as Fountain Blue about what the state of the property was like, because I mean, this was, and even when Whitcoff bought it as the Drew, I mean, this was a, a property that had sat, a building that had sat unfinished in the elements for, at that point, a, a decade. Um, yeah. There was a lot of skepticism. I remember seeing stories and, and seeing the rumor mill churning out the rumors about, oh, they're going to have to tear it down. There's no way they're going to be able to to just go in and continue on as if nothing had ever happened, because in my brain, you can't have a building like that or a project like that just sit half finished, exposed to the elements for that length of time and have it be just good to go. So I point out, a, I would point out a couple of things. You know, one is that the the tower itself, the the bulk of the property, was actually mostly enclosed. Um, there were definitely, if you go to the north side of the tower, there were lots of spaces that were open. I think maybe. I don't know if it was like an elevator shaft or what, but there were there were clearly areas that hadn't been enclosed with with windows. But I'd say the majority of the tower was actually already enclosed. So you're not going to get like wind and whatever coming in. The other thing, too, is that exposed and I've talked to a lot of people about this over the years, exposed steel actually holds up very well 
in the in Vegas if it's um, even if it's sitting there for years because we have virtually no humidity and it and so I remember doing a lot of stories about you know the the physical condition of these abandoned projects like years ago, not even just found blue, but like all these condo projects and whatever that, that, had, that had been abandoned. And I remember talking to construction experts who said, you can actually, you might have to, you know, blast off the rust and whatever and clean it up, but it actually holds up really well. And obviously you have to test it and make sure it's going to, it's going to be fine. Like clearly you can't just be like, Oh great. Let's just, let's just wrap it and let's just keep going. Like you have to, there, there's a lot that goes into it, but it, it but steel in particular, holds up, holds up very well because there's not a lot of moisture in the air. It's very dry here. So you don't get mold, you don't get rot. Um, you don't, you don't get those kinds of things. Exposed wood, on the other hand, I, I doubt that it would hold up as well as, as exposed steel. Um, that's more prone to, you know, breaking or catching on fire or, or whatever. Um, but the fountain blue was a, was a steel and glass high rise. And so structurally, it, it, it was probably going to be fine. And, and from everything I've heard, it has been fine. There, have, there haven't been any issues at all that I've heard of with, um, with the structure itself. As far as everything I've heard is that it's actually, it's fine. Um, you know, and so the main area that was exposed was at the base of, of the building. And so obviously they, like, they had to clean up a lot in there. But structurally, I, I haven't heard anything that it was compromised like in any way. It was everything I've heard is that it's fine. Um, so those abandoned projects actually hold up better than I think people would, would expect. And like any rational person would, would look at an, at an abandoned building and say, there's no way that that's going to be okay after sitting there for 10 years. Like mm -hmm. it just, it just wouldn't make any sense, but it's kind of, so it's kind of counterintuitive, but at least for steel, if it's, a, if it's a steel frame building, it holds up well. And it wasn't the only one where the steel, a steel frame building was, was finished and even after it sat untouched for years, there is a, a big outdoor mall in Summerlin, the, the, the community where I live. It's now known as the, the shopping district is now known as downtown Summerlin, downtown with a capital D. But that was also an abandoned project for, for several years. And it had this partially built steel office building, like basically in the middle of it. And once construction resumed, they were able to use it. And that office building is there today, I think it's fully leased. Like they're able to use that building. Um, where Resorts World is today, when when Boyd Gaming walked away and left this the carcass of Echelon sitting there, that it was a steel frame, partially built high rise. Um, Genting Group, they are the developers of Resorts World. They just they built right on top of it. They they used it. They kept it and they used it and it's fine. So you can you can do that in in Vegas. Other cities maybe not, but in, at least in Vegas because it's so dry. There's such low humidity. Um, exposed steel actually holds up pretty well. So, and yeah, with the fountain blue, I remember talking to Wickoff about that. He even said himself he had heard 150 nasty rumors about you know people pouring concrete in the pipes just to spite you know the you know just just to spite the former owners um, or that it was you know in, in horrible physical condition. And he said it was fine. Like he was able to use it. Um, and then when um, Sofer reacquired it. He said it was it was fine. It was like seventy five percent done, and you know they have to clean some stuff up, obviously, but like they're able to finish it. Setting aside the condition of the building, just knowing the history of the Fountain Blue, and and I'll admit I was one of the skeptics as well as as it was going up, and 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 then the big news when they hung the logo on the side of the building. And I was one of the ones that said, I feel like they should focus on the inside before they put the logo on the outside of the building. But I mean, it just felt like such a, a 
a somewhat ridiculous thing to do, but at the same time, I guess it kind of just proved, yep, we are powering forward on this. Yeah. And when they, when they hung the letters on the building, there was also, in addition to that, lots of activity going on at the site. I mean, it, it has really been, truly been a very visibly busy construction site since, you know, the fall of 2021, I would say. Um, you can drive, every time I've driven by, there's tons of construction going on, you know, heavy, lots of heavy equipment, cranes, people coming in and out. It's, it's a very obviously active site and you can't, and that's all you can see when you drive by is just, you just get like a snippet of it. You can't see what's going on inside the tower and in other areas, you know, the pool deck and the casino floor, like you can't see any of that stuff. Um, so it's just a, you, you got you, but driving by, you can see it's been, it's been very active for, for some time now. So the official opening date, December 13th, 2023, we're powering ahead towards that now. What effect do you think that this is going to have on the North end of the strip? I mean, as we were saying earlier, I mean, this is an area of, of Las Vegas Boulevard that's been dead for a, a, a very long time with a lot of vacant lots and, and very little going on up there. There are properties up there, but it feels like they are so disconnected from the rest of the strip. Is yeah. this really going to help bring that back together? It's tough to say because w- one thing that the North Strip does not have, and I'm and I, I'm not sure if the Fountain Blue will change this, is it doesn't have a lot of foot traffic, and you don't have a lot of people walking around. And I, I mean, maybe the Fountain Blue will change that, and you'll see tons of people walking around. I, it's it's always possible; you never know. But I would I would let's put it this way: I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't change that. Just because there are there's still not a lot of places to go on the North Strip, even when the Fountain Blue is up and running and totally 100% operational, you know you've got the Fountain Blue, you've got Resorts World across the street. You go up a, a stretch, you get to what's now the Sahara again, formerly the SLS, and you, so you've got Sahara Las Vegas. But in between that, you still have these big empty lots. You have some some small retail. Um, you do have the Las Vegas Convention Center, which has been expanded. It's like this $1 billion expansion project, which has brought the convention center closer to Las Vegas Boulevard than, you know, because pre- previously, I think it was just on, it was really just up and down Paradise Road and which is east of the east of the strip. And now it's the expansion has brought it closer along convention center drive closer to Las Vegas Boulevard itself. Um, so you've got more activity with conventions. So you so you do have more, you, you have more places to go. You have, you have more activity on the North Strip, but I think it would need a lot more than even just the Fountain Blue opening to get more people walking around and get that, that like just that buzz of activity that you see in the Central Strip uh, around, say, like Harmon in Las Vegas Boulevard or Flamingo in Las Vegas Boulevard, where it's just wall to wall casinos, hotels, retail, entertainment options. You still have these gaps on the North Strip that that would have to be filled in, I think, before you see masses of people walking around. Uh, so I, I don't I don't suspect that 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 will change, at least even with the Fountain Blue opening. So and also the Fountain Blue, you know, they're they've they've branded themselves as a as a really high end property. And for those types of properties, it's you know, they're trying to be a destination property, obviously, like, you know, on the lines of like a win or a Venetian or something like that. And so. And those aren't typically properties people just kind of 
stroll along and pop into it. They tend to be something that they have plans to go to. It's a destination for them. And so they're, they're not as reliant on foot traffic as, as other properties on the strip are. Do you think that that um, marketing as a destination high-end property, though, will that hurt the Fountain Blue a little bit? Just in that when you compare them, say, to the Win or the Venetian, the one advantage that the Win and the Venetian have over Fountain Blue is location. I mean, the Venetian is you can walk out of that hotel and be on the strip. Same thing, essentially, with the wind. You're walking out on the strip. Out of the Fountain Blue, you've, you've got a bit of a trek to go before you're in the action. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's and that's something that every resort faces at some point or another, because at least like in Vegas, whenever a new resort opens, the crowds are massive. It's almost a guarantee that like right off the bat, at least for the first month or so, the crowds are, are just going to be huge because there's a curiosity effect where, where people want to see or curiosity factor rather where people want to see the newest thing on the Las Vegas trip. So you get tons of people, you get lots of locals going there to check out the restaurants or whatever. You get lots of tourists who want to stay there or at least pop in and have a drink or gamble for a little bit. And so drawing those crowds, at least initially, is not difficult. The challenge though, is that once that curiosity wears off and that that newness wears off, for lack of a better word, how do you keep people coming in? And I think without all that foot traffic, Fountain Blue is really going to have to it's going to have to prove itself as a destination property. And so can they do it? Sure. It's, all, it's always possible. Um, other properties have tried it and hasn't gone very well. You know, I think like with the SLS, for instance, which is even farther up the North Strip and away from the action, even more so than the Fountain Blue, they had a really hard time. You know, I think, you know, their owners at the time, this was like 2014, 2015, when the SLS opened up, you know, that, that was a brand, the SLS brand is really big in LA. I think it's really big in Miami. And so they were banking on, you know, Vegas, our number one source of visitors from anywhere is Southern California. Um, that is far and away and has long been, if not always been, um, the biggest source of, of, of tourists to, to Las Vegas. And so I think those operators figured they had deep ties to L.A. They were really well known out there and they were going to get a lot of people from L.A. who wanted to come there. And I don't think that happened. You know, because when people from anywhere come to Vegas, they want to have a Vegas experience. They want to do things that they can't do back home. And so it proved a tougher sell to get people who are familiar with the SLS brand. I think it proved a tougher sell uh, to get them to come to the property than, than the owners had initially anticipated. And being where they were on the far end of the North Strip with virtually nothing around them, that, that clearly proved you know, a, a big hurdle for them too. Um, it's since come under new ownership. And I, by all accounts, I think the property is doing, be- doing better now. Uh, financially and crowds wise under the current ownership. And, and now that it's back to being the Sahara. So it's, it's a different story, but you know, so for that, we're talking like seven, eight years ago. Um, but again, with the fountain blue, you know, it's, I, you know, I guess the only answer is, I guess we'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, they open up, like you said, mid December. And, you know, I think the best gauge for how well they're doing is to see what happens through 2024. Uh, when you've got, when they have, you know, a full year under their belt and, you know, that curiosity factor wears off and, They've, they've just got to operate as a, as a year round resort. I think resorts world has kind of gone through that, um, that initial, that drop off as well, because I know I, I saw video and, and footage from the night that it opened and for the first little while. And I know a lot of, uh, different Vegas content creators who stayed there and the place was packed and it was full and jammed. And then now when you go to, uh, resorts world, 
it's relatively quiet. That shopping area has gone through. A lot of those shops have gone through changes and restaurants have closed and reopened and things like that. So it kind of feels like I, I'm, I'm wondering if Fountain Blue is sort of going to mirror that resorts world situation where, as you say, you see that initial boom and then just a bit of a drop off, particularly without all that foot traffic. Yeah. So I personally, I actually have not been inside Resorts World. I've only been there a couple of times. So I don't have a lot of firsthand observation about the foot traffic inside the property. I was there the opening night helping cover, like with other reporters at the Review Journals, helping cover the opening and the crowds were huge. There were tons of people. They even released after, I forget the number offhand, but it was tens of thousands of people at least who who came out for, for the opening night or the opening weekend. And I did hear just even anecdotally that the crowds, excuse me, the crowds were thinning out like as, as time went on, excuse me. Um, and, it, and it's tough with resorts world to gauge their financial like performance because the owner Genting group is a Malaysian based, it's a public company based in Malaysia, but they release, they don't re- they don't release a lot of information about the financials of resorts world specifically. I think they release some numbers here and there, um, I do think that at one, if I remember correctly, at one point, I want to say earlier this year, like the earnings gauge that they released was maybe the highest it had been since since the property opened. So there were there was talk that the resorts world was doing better, but I did hear some talk over you know after they opened, like sometime after they opened, that like you know the crowds weren't as big as people were hoping, and you know things weren't going exactly as planned. But but I th- I think they're so it, so again without. See, with that, since we get so limited information about the property, about the financial results, it's tough to say like how they're doing, so to speak. But, but again, this is a, a challenge that like every new resort in Vegas always faces. It's this perpetual question of like, once that curiosity wears off, how do you stay successful? How do you keep, how do you stay busy? How do you keep the crowds coming? And it's tough. Vegas is an extremely competitive market. I mean, just super competitive, you know, with the with the comps that the operators are willing to throw at guests to get them in the door, just the ever ever changing menu of amenities and features and different restaurants and performers. All this is done to get people in the door. It is so competitive. And there I mean, I remember if if you remember the uh, the Lucky Dragon uh, project that was supposed to be like a boutique Chinese themed property. Um, you know, Vegas gets a lot of Asian visitors, you know, people coming from overseas from Asia, a lot of Asian Americans who come here. So it seemed like a great idea. This is, you know, it's a big, you know, it's a sizable segment of the, of the tourist population here. And it lasted less than two years. I mean, they just got beat up bad because there are already so many, you know, it, it was a very small property. It was only 200 rooms. It was a boutique property, not operated by, a, you know, a mega resort operator like an MGM Resorts or Caesars or whatever. It was individually owned. You know, they they can't compete with the with the likes of MGM or Caesars. And you you had lots of Asian gamblers who they had their favorite hosts, they had their favorite places to go. And it just didn't, it just failed. You know, it didn't last very long at all. And so, you know, I think like in any other market, a, a project like the Lucky Dragon would have been, first of all, would have been big in any other city, like two, I think it was like 10 or 11 stories, 200 rooms. Like that's a decent size property, but in Vegas, it's like minuscule, you know, like it, it's really tiny when you've got literally like 3000 rooms <laughs> or 2000 rooms 
in these other in in these other properties. And so it's just it's just very hard to compete unless you have lots of money to begin with. And so you know, luckily, I think the Found Blue, you know, their finance their backers are very wealthy and they have other properties. This isn't like a one-off thing that they decided to do and like, hey, let's go to Vegas and, and build a resort. You know, you've got Coke Industries, who's behind them, which is one of the biggest industrial conglomerates in, in the country, if not the world, probably at least one of the most, one of the biggest privately held industrial conglomerates. They've got unbelievable amounts of money. So Jeff Sofer, his group, Fountain Blue Development, you know, they already own other hotels in Florida and other locations. So they have a, a big portfolio of properties. Uh, they've got a lot of experience. They've got a the big database of customers, presumably. So they're coming in, you know, I think well situated, like as well as you could be to, to compete right off the bat. So, but I think the big question a lot of people have is how are they going to do on the North Strip? And that's something that no one, nobody knows. We'll, we'll find out eventually, but I think that's a big question that everybody has. Eli, thank you for all of this. I, I really appreciate this. This has been a great conversation. I feel like there's a, 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 a several episodes that we could do about some of the various projects that have uh, gone up and down and failed and succeeded and, and, and all of that. So I'd love to have you back on the podcast for another conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. This was really fun. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.